0: You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here with Paul, and uh, we're going to have a new series starting today on the book Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, a famous Roman Catholic writer, used to be Anglican, and uh, he's written a book that many consider to be a a classic of Christian literature. It's very punchy, very witty, and uh, a book that I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing about. So, uh, Paul, uh, this was actually your idea. You were considering doing a series on orthodoxy. What uh, inspired you to do such a thing? Mainly that you didn't
1: want to do it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I just like doing things that you initially had, like, initially had a kind of hesitance to, and I thought that would be super fun. I mean, it's a great book in general. It's the sort of thing that, like, I think a lot of evangelicals aren't super familiar with Chesterton's work. We know Lewis, and everybody talks about Saint Louis, and we read *Mere Christianity* and *Narnia*. Um, and Chesterton's a way to just shake things up a little bit. He's Catholic; he's a I, little bit more rough. Why did, the edges. Wanna, why did you think I wouldn't want to? Why did you think I
0: wouldn't want to talk about him? Did I? Did you initially suggest it, and I was like, ah, I don't know about that.
1: I don't remember uh, what my I mean, reaction was. He's he's Catholic, and so I don't know. Evangelicals have a little bit of they m- maybe they bristle a little bit when people bring up Chesterton. Maybe this is just my naive take from the outside. I, I think of
0: all Catholic writers, Chesterton gets a free pass from evangelicals. I think that most people would be like, okay, he's he's okay. He gets in. Yeah, he has a wide appeal, I think, in his writing. So something Wide like because he's Although, a very large man. <laughs> he, he is kind of a, yeah, I know. It's it, Some of the uh, modern copies of Orthodoxy, they have like a, a, a drawing of Chesterton. It's not very flattering. But, uh, uh,
1: he was like, I don't know. he was over 300 pounds. The guy was Are you like, serious? Oh, he was huge. Yeah. Um, there was a joke once where like during world war one, a woman in England walked up to him and said, why aren't you fighting at the front lines? And he told her like, if you go from the side and take a look at me, you'll see that I'm already there. Like, cause his wow. gut was huge. Yeah. He got stuck in a taxi cab once in London cause he was just, he couldn't like get out of the car. He's was like he's a huge guy, six four, three hundred something pounds. Uh, he was t- intimidating figure, like intellectually and physically.
0: It's like an offensive uh, offensive lineman who. Uh, <laughs> I said that weird offensive offensive lineman who uh, just also has like a doctorate or something, or is a brilliant writer. He essays. actually didn't
1: even. He didn't go to college. He was not that well educated, like formally speaking. Okay, well, why don't you just give us the biographical lowdown of this guy so that
0: people, lowly evangelicals that you disdain, can, can learn about I'm, this great figure.
1: I am one of these lowly evangelicals. I just like taking shots from the inside. It's yeah, always yeah, easy yeah. to make fun of your own. I know. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Paul's secretly a Catholic. Yeah. Um, now go, go ahead. Yeah, what, what do we need to know about Chesterton to appreciate him? I guess some of the highlights, he um, grew up kind of like nominally Christian, but gave up his faith, became sort of just like a pagan nihilist um, in his like in middle school. So he was like a very reflective emo English kid who like left his Christian faith, became a little bit nihilistic. Um, then he became an agnostic. And so he like slightly moved a little bit up in the spectrum, closer towards theism, eventually converted to Anglicanism. And then Catholicism at the end of his life, uh, and died around age sixty-two. Like he was an extremely prolific writer. Like I think a lot of us just don't even have the, the like frame of reference to understand how much he wrote. He wrote like a hundred books, full-length books, and four thousand columns, like for various newspapers, like actual essays on various topics from politics, to theology, to cheese making, to wine. He was like cheese making. He's got an essay on like how cheese is made and how actually like it glorifies God. He's like the John Piper of the Catholic church in the late 19th century. (laughs) We need to do an episode on his cheese making essay. That's not not a bad idea. uh, That's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. So he, he, I mean, how did he receive all of his intellectual
1: training? He just, he was super well-read, yeah. He was, he, and he was like invited to do stuff and so he was invited to write pieces and in doing so he would read and research and he was living in London, like right before war, World War I when there was a lot of like interesting philosophy taking off and literary people like um, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell, the famous British philosopher. And so he was running in these circles in London and after he converted to Christianity, he would do public debates with these folks all the time. Like, for example, he debated George Bernard Shaw like a dozen times, who famous English novelist and essayist, and they would just meet in like a London pub and Chesterton would be there smoking a pipe and he's got a glass of whiskey in the other hand and he's just like super heavy set and roaring and, you know, making sh- jokes about Christianity and why atheism doesn't work. And this was his life. He was... He was not like a prim and proper English academic. He was like a rough and ready on the ground journalist who like frequented pubs, was smoking all the time and would just like get into spats with atheists. But he was a brilliant mind, super sharp. His wit was known all over England. Um, In America, like he wrote for the Daily News newspaper. That's how influential his writing was that a New York newspaper invited him to be a weekly columnist for like 15 years. And so, all of these essays, I think, not all, maybe most, are available online that people have collected. So, just like super prolific, super interesting, not what you'd expect from like a Christian literary figure. Um, so that for the, all those reasons, I think he's historically important, but also just he's going to provide some interesting perspective. Um, we've seen a lot of Lewis, and we do a lot of Lewis on this podcast, and I think Chesterton's going to mix it up for us a little bit.
0: What was uh, Chesterton's relationship to? Lewis, I mean, I don't know. If, it seems to sound like they were, I mean, in different times, but what is the relation even in their works to one another? Was Lewis influenced by Chesterton?
1: Yeah. So uh, at the end of World War One, Lewis was reading Chesterton's works, specifically The Everlasting Man, which is an, also an apologetics work and the work that Chesterton wrote later, which is why I'm a Catholic, after his conversion in 1922. Lewis read both of those things. And Lewis made a comment like, um, he was still not a Christian at that point. He said, uh, Chesterton is smarter than all the modern intellectuals put together, except for his Christianity. (laughs) So he thought that Chesterton was a brilliant man, his politics, his philosophy, his economics, um, his ability to synthesize ideas and convey stuff so clearly and He was not a progressive. And so Lewis had like sort of some conservative tendencies. And so he was attracted to Chesterton for those reasons. But he still thought, yeah, like if only Chesterton could get rid of this one flaw in his worldview, his Christianity, then he'd be like the prime sort of um, intellectual figure of our day. So Lewis read Everlasting Man. And he talks about this in Surprised by Joy, how that like kind of moved him and made Christianity a little bit more compelling for him. So in some ways, Lewis is indebted to Chesterton, both for some of his literary influences, but also his making Christianity more appealing to him.
0: What was uh, the story of Chesterton's conversion? How did it? You said he became Anglican before returning back to becoming Catholic.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. I don't think it was anything super profound or deep. um, But it was in his late teens, early twenties. I guess he's just sort of had a kind of like in reading and studying. He wasn't in college. He was just in these circles trying to figure out life and his worldview um, that he sort of thought saw again in a real new way. Christianity is a live option. Um, and it kind of melded well with his already kind of conservative instincts. And we can talk a little bit about that, like the Chesterton fence model of conservatism. Don't pull down a fence until you know why it was first put up. Chesterton was the one who articulated that. Um, and I think Christianity offered him a way to make sense of some of those conservative values in a way that wasn't piecemeal or contrived and gave him a broader worldview to situate all these different things. Um, I was actually listening to an interview with a neo-Nazi who became a Christian after reading Chesterton and Lewis. And so he, yeah, he was in prison in England. He was part of this like neo-Nazi group. He was leading the neo-Nazi group in his early 20s and he was reading Lewis and Chesterton. And he said, he basically made the same comment that Lewis did. He's like, these guys are brilliant, except for their Christianity. <laughs> and so it was later that he discovered, actually, it's it's because of their Christianity that they're so brilliant. Um, and he converted, he, you know, repented of all his racist tendencies. And yeah, he's, he's Catholic now. Super interesting. Uh, but yeah, like, I think these guys have really wide appeal. And Chesterton, I think more so in a special way, because of his... In a lot of ways, he's a lot more socially conservative than Lewis, and so he has that appeal to people a little bit more on the right, but super brilliant man regardless.
0: Regardless of being on the right, despite <laughs> his conservative, Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's amazing hearing that just thinking about a journalist with that high caliber of prose and intellectual firepower, you don't really – it doesn't seem like you see that today. Yeah. Even just thinking about him debating in a pub with somebody. I mean, maybe it's just a bygone era, but uh, it's interesting how he could write on a variety of subjects, cheese making being one of them, but also <laughs> have these profound insights that have withstood the test of time about Christianity. And I, people don't, today don't have that conservative. Most of the things that liberals believed 20 years ago are conservative positions now, yeah. a lot of them at least. And so – you wonder if today you don't even have the atmosphere for people to even have the values that Christianity makes sense of. You almost have to like instill the values first so that Christianity can actually bring it together in some respect. But it's an interesting point that you made that Chesterton already had this conservative sense of sensibility. I think a lot of the conservative sensibility and I'm using conservative loosely, I guess, but, is a reverence for the past and understanding of the importance of tradition, and a reticence to change things without reflection. You know, and I think those are really helpful in understanding Christianity. And today, I just don't think that there's that atmosphere for that kind of thinking to happen. I don't know how effective Cheston would be today.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. And you're right that we don't have people doing the same sorts of things. I can't. I I'm trying to think of he'd be canceled.
0: Who- he'd be canceled immediately.
1: Maybe like um like Ross Duthat or something like that. Like he's Catholic and he's a journalist and but you're right, there there is no sort of towering intellectual figure who's also super witty and cutting and like respected on the other side. We don't live in that sort of world, and maybe that's because we're more polarized than like the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century would have been in London, where like imagine going to a pub and just like an atheist philosopher and a Christian journalist are just going at it, like friendly, but they, they realize that they've got different commitments and yeah, you just don't have that.
0: But Chesterton is polarizing. I mean, in the sense of when he writes, he writes very directly. He uses satire. He's very punchy in the things that he says. So I think sometimes people think, well, if only we could all just be nicer or the po- the polarization comes from people being too direct or too uncharitable or something like that. But in reality, I think it's the the reason there's so much polarization is because there's
1: so much sensitivity. I, I agree. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying that like, the message is not itself polarizing, but the culture we live in is the poles are further apart than they would have been in that Mm. time period. And so we're more likely to view the other side with suspicion because we're not used to maybe having these kinds of dialogues on a regular basis. And you're right, everyone's sensitive. We are more, it's it's easier to close yourself off to people that you don't wanna hear. So echo chambers are a lot easier to, to live in and come by either online or in your actual physical circles. And maybe, maybe that's why English pubs were great because you've got like, you know, your blue collar, like coal miner guys and your journalists and your Oxford professors, like all just hanging out there, different worldviews. And you've got this melting pot in a way that like society is a lot more stratified now, which is interesting given we all want to be like inclusive and like, we don't want to deal with class and we all like, no one wants to be elitist, but We are far more elitist now than we were like a hundred years ago, even like think of all your liberal academic types. Like, are they hanging out in pubs with blue collar, like iron smiths and coal miners and probably not. So it's just interesting to think about that.
0: And there's something very blue collar about the way he engages things. I mean, it's, he, he really does poke at people who are too smart for their own good and they lack all common sense. And if mm-hmm. anything I think that's what he points out is you, you can almost be so um I think Lewis has a line where the cynic sees through everything and ends up seeing nothing at all and I mm-hmm. think Chesterton kind of touches on that where he's saying this world if you had any common sense you wouldn't need to be this highly educated to see what's directly in front of your face and in fact you know he talks about how the the madman doesn't think he's mad and and, and we can we'll get into those when we get to those chapters but orthodoxy it's a, it seems like it's a, it's a collection of essays, is that mm-hmm. right? And the first chapter, he kind of introduces this work as a response to someone else's critique of his prior work. So he wrote a book called Heresies. Heretics. Heretics, Heretics. yeah. Yep. So I, I, Irenaeus <laughs> wrote, or whoever wrote Heresies, yeah. That's um,
1: right.
0: He wrote, yeah, that's right. He wrote, uh, he says, uh, when some time ago I published a series of hasty but sincere papers under the name of Heretics. And uh, this guy named Mr. G.S. Street critiqued him and basically said that Chesterton is all bark, no bite. Why don't you show us your philosophy? If you're going to critique my philosophy, why don't you show your philosophy as opposed to just critiquing the the heretics and all that stuff? And Chesterton says uh, that he's going to do that, but he's going to do it in a vague and personal way. In a set of mental pictures rather than in a series of deductions to state the philosophy in which I've come to believe, I will not call it my philosophy for I did not make it. God and humanity made it and it made me, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting, I mean, he, his turns of phrase are so fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful writing.
0: But it seems like what he's saying is you want me to engage with you, but I'm going to engage with you in a way that lives within the, the Christian tradition. I'm going to engage with you with mental pictures Uh, you know, story, you know, I'm going to, with narrative, with, with kind of using the wonder of of creation, all these types of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's basically kind of saying, you're, I'm not going to lay out something that I created for my musings of the world. I'm going to lay out what has been given to us by God and what has formed the Christian tradition and lay that out for you. And that leads to his interesting metaphor about an English yachtsman who'd, uh, who, who uh, well, maybe, maybe any, well, before we get into that, do you have any thoughts on, on what I just said or, or
1: that I just I was just gonna say, it, um, it's interesting that, and he – in in writing this book, he acknowledges this fact that it's so much easier to criticize than it is to build up a positive view of your right. own worldview. And so his book, Heretics, was all about like why the social sciences don't work, why paganism doesn't work, why atheism is lacking. And those are all – I mean there are great arguments, fantastic essays, definitely worth reading for those who are listening. It's a great set of essays. Um but when it comes to building a positive account, and I see this even in myself as a philosopher, and you've pointed this out. Philosophers I see it really all good... the time. <laughs> it's so easy to knock holes in someone else's position. And in some ways, we are more keenly attuned to the problemat- problematic ways that people reason when we look at other people reasoning. And so it's easier to identify flaws there than it is to actually give a positive account. And so... A lot of his work up until orthodoxy was doing the easy stuff. It was like, hey, social sciences treat humans reductionistically. Atheism can't make sense of all this stuff. And then people were like, okay, well, like, give us the positive view. What's your vision? What are we supposed to do? And then he shifts tone where he was so cutting and precise before. He's like, well, I'm going to be a little bit vague and squishy and personal here. And I'm going to have to rely on narrative. And I'm going to rely on stories. And I'm going to give you a philosophical system that I didn't create that I inherited from somewhere else. Um, but to make it compelling for you, I'm gonna have to use the personal, the vague, the narrative. And I thought that was just fascinating. Like he understands human psychology so well that he knows that's the stuff that's actually gonna compel people. So he reserves his the logic and the analytic stuff for pointing out the flaws in the opposing side. But when it comes to building a positive vision of Christianity, like Lewis, as someone who's a literary um, expert, he's gonna draw metaphors and pictures and try to move us by our heartstrings and give us a appetite for Christianity before we even like come to recognize that it's true. And he thinks that's where the battle is. Do we want Christianity to be true? Do we want to wish that Christianity were true? Do we want an appetite for Christianity? If that's that's the case, then he's already got you, like he's converted you basically. You don't even need to show you that Christianity is true. You just have to show you that it's beautiful. And that's what Chesterton's trying to do.
0: I think when you talk to somebody who's very opposed to Christianity, it's, you'd like to think that you just have to put your arguments there. You put their arguments there and then they can clearly see which one's the best one, but that's not how we work. We're biased. We have confirmation bias. We don't want to hear the other side. And I think what Chesterton is doing is he's trying to, in the interest of persuasion, he's trying to, you know, like you're saying, uh, cause them to to wonder. And even in the style of his writing, to almost be playful with it, mm-hmm. which actually puts the person who's interacting with him in the position to actually hear what he's saying. I think a lot of people don't realize this. It's kind of like, you know, people say facts don't care about your feelings. And I understand what that means, that your, your emotions don't determine what is true, right? But persuasion does include an understanding. And I think feelings, I don't mean feelings in terms of like, I'm sad today. It, well, I, I mean, in the sense of we are persuaded by more than just logical argument. And we know that. And I think that most of the positions that you hold today that you were persuaded of, you'd look back and it wasn't just this airtight logical argument. That was certainly part of it. But it was also the, the, the life that somebody who embodies that becomes compelling to you or the way that that conversation happened or how it, you know, gives you, expands your horizons and your imagination, all these types of things. And if we look back again, I think we see that. It's a, it's a whole host of factors. And I think Chesterton recognized that. But I, I also don't think he's going like, let's avoid hard subjects by using story, you know, and narrative and all these kind of squishy words. He means them in a very concrete way. I mean, he's, again, when he writes, he's very direct. He's very biting almost. But... He writes in such a way that it, 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 it really draws you in and it's – I mean, essentially, he really understands how to communicate through the written word.
1: Um, so are you, are you saying that Ben Shapiro was wrong and facts do care about your feelings? <laughs>
0: well, I don't think that facts are changed by feelings. I think that persuasion has to take into account the entire – I mean, anyone who – the medium matters, you know? I mean, it it, it depends. I mean, people who debate or, you know, who have their own video vlog, I mean, they all, you know, want to present themselves in a way that people will take them seriously and all these types of things. So anyway, I mean, that's a whole other thing. But all that to say in his first chapter, he calls introduction in defense of everything else. And I mentioned this. He says he, uh, he talks about this story about that he wants to write an actual novel about. Uh, it's a romance about an English yachtsman who slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Seas. And he says that's basically him, that, that he's this guy, he's, on the, he's you know, sailing around and he's miscalculated. He ends up in a place and he goes, oh, I found a new land. But actually, he's back in England. And he uses that as a metaphor to show kind of the weirdness of life itself, our existence That on the one hand, the world is a very strange place that we find we're at home in. And I think also in his own spiritual journey, um, he comes back home to Christianity, so to speak, and kind of rediscovers it. It it seems like it's this new thing for him, but it's really everything that he had been taught as a kid. I think. I think that's where he's getting at.
1: Yeah. Um, But there's there's, there's also a tension between wonder and understanding. So on the one hand, you want to say the world is something that we can understand because it's familiar to us because we grew up here. And so we're supposed to take it as a given that, you know, there's experiences and we have all the stuff around us. That's run of the mill everyday stuff, but also Chesterton wants to instill a sense of wonder at the world. Like wonder doesn't mean just curiosity, like not just having an itch that you need to be scratched, but wonder is being able to look at a tree or look at, you know, a bird or look at even just walking outside and, and and delighting in that. How do you how do you how can you do both of those things? How can you understand something and also wonder at it? And so he's going to say that we need a kind of renewed vision of nature that doesn't um, make these things in tension. That really, it's it's when you have this materialistic view of the world that there's a tension there. Because when you understand something, you reduce it down to its constitutive components. Like when you look at a tree, you just say, well, this is just carbon, and carbon is just these atoms, and these atoms are just these particles. And that, that is not conducive to wondering if you just reduce. But Christianity has this view of nature that tells us At the same time, we've got this reality that's true and describable by scientific laws, but also there's a meaning and a purpose and a teleology and we're made to enjoy these things and creation is God's canvas and all of this is a kind of work of art. And so part of Chesterton's big question is how can we understand reality and also wonder at it and not just become like airy fairy like hippies who are just wondering all the time at everything because we're like off our minds on shrooms. Versus like the hardcore reductionist scientific paradigm that was like popular in Europe in the early 20th century. And Christianity is supposed to offer us a way between those two things. I wonder if it's today with our,
0: you know, with technological age, if you break things down just with materialism, you look at a tree and you're thinking it's just broken down to atoms and all that stuff that you were saying. And I think it's very hard to have a sense of the, the gift of creation that it's something to be enjoyed rather than just be instrumentalized. A tree isn't just raw material to build this thing, to advance your career, to do, you know, do this other thing, to whatever. It's actually just the tree is there to, for your enjoyment, uh, for your provision and, and also to lift to us be up a tree. To, yeah. right, to be a tree. But also I think countering the hippie world, you're not just sort of, they're not just, Oh, you look at a tree and you just, it's just there to give you good vibes. but it is meant to lift you up. It's meant to lift you to worship God. And so I think that there's something also beyond the thing. Um, So it's not just instrumentalizing things, but it's also not just pleasure. Like when people say be in the moment and just enjoy the moment and enjoy the breeze for the breeze. And it's like, that's not what we're talking about with Christianity. It's enjoying it, but also seeing that it's a gift. It comes from someone that there's a givenness to creation that we miss, and I think because of technology and all these things, which are great, but I think one of the in- unintended effects is that we start to see everything in a mechanistic way and the world is just, they're just, it's just raw material for us to impose our will to create things you know. out of. Again, that itself is not necessarily bad, but I think it, it loses its, the wonder of, of the givenness of creation.
1: Yeah, I mean, t- tying in with that theme of the the technology stuff and the making things in our image and um, Chesterton was actually famous in the UK for helping pass the Anti-Eugenics Act in the early 20th century in the UK. When people were saying we should, and this was like right before World War I and after World War I, people with certain mental disabilities, the poor, people with you know unfavorable conditions and traits, they should be like not euthanized, but sterilized. They should not be allowed to have children. Um, Chesterton's critique, which gets taken up in a similar vein by Lewis later, is one, dignity of humanity. And two, this idea that, we're not supposed to be making humanity in our own image. Like there's a kind of respect for humanity as something that is coming from God and it's not in our control. And so with the temptation to make everything part of the domain of science and under our thumb, humanity is one of those things that we want to also make in our own image. And like Lewis points out in Abolition of Man, when humans start making ourselves in our own image, what ends up happening is that hierarchy. It's some humans making all of humanity in their image. And so you lose that on humanity. And so this falls into that same kind of like nature, anti-tech critique. We need to be open to see creation as a gift from God and not see ourselves as masters of creation, which again rides this middle piece or this middle way between the hardcore naturalistic view that says, Everything is instrumental. We can take it and use it for our purposes. And the sort of hippie, airy fairy position that's just, well, you know, trees have souls. And Christianity is offering a way in the middle that respects the dignity of nature, but doesn't allow us to instrumentalize everything for our own purposes so that we become masters of it.
0: What do you think about this line? What is he trying to communicate when he says, I wish to set forth my faith as particularly answering this double spiritual need the need for that mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar, which Christendom has rightly named Romance.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I think, and this, we kind of talked about this when we did the podcast about church, about like, I don't know, a couple years ago. It feels like so long ago. Yeah. And we talked about this idea where if you walk into a church on a Sunday morning, you don't want it to look like the club that you walked out of Saturday night. Yeah. But also, it shouldn't be so unfamiliar that it looks alien. Mm -hmm. So at, at, Christianity has this dual nature where at one level, it's unfamiliar to the carnal self, and it draws us up out of that carnal self, but it's also recognizable as good. So that transcendence that we see and grasp there is something that God has given us a capacity to grasp. So it's familiar and unfamiliar. It's part of what we are, but also not part of what we are in the same way so Ecclesiastes talks about God putting eternity in the hearts of men. We are not eternal creatures by nature, but we have a striving or a desire for it. And so the unfamiliar familiar paradox is one that comes up over and over and over in Chesterton's work here. And paradox just in general, uh, Chesterton loves that concept. But I think, yeah, this idea that romance, romance removes you from seeing something as mundane and carnal. And it takes you beyond yourself so that you see it as transcendent, but you have to be able to recognize it as transcendent. It's not an alien life form. It's not an alien technology. It's within the purview of what humans are supposed to find beautiful. And yet still, it's sufficiently dissimilar from the carnal life that it, it strikes us by its unfamiliarity and compels us by its unfamiliarity. Well, he goes on to write that
0: there is this desirability in most people, of an active and imaginative life, picturesque and full of a poetical curiosity, a life such as Western man, at any rate, always seems to have desired. And I think there's something too that with romance, I mean, even with with a with a person, it's someone who's different from you, and in a sense, you don't know them, and mm. you feel at home with them, and you're more, and you're learning more and more about them. And like you're saying, like with Christianity and churches, and you you walk in. Everyone who walks in the church has a sense that this is probably where like God stuff is happening, you know, <laughs> and maybe that's cultural conditioning. But I think even in most religions, the temples are very different from the places of commerce and all those types yeah, of things. That's a good point. So there's something to that. Maybe a need. I, I think what what uh, Chester is talking about is a sense of transcendence, a sense uh, that poetry is not just meaningless words about meaningless things. But it's actually talking about something more fundamental underneath the atoms, right? Yeah. That these atoms are real, but they're put together with a design, a teleology, to create these things that have meaning and come from God. And it's one of those things where, it, so we're always at risk with this of sounding like, like you're saying, like you like to say airy fairy, like you were even saying. Like, well, what are you talking about? Or you've even critiqued people being flowery with their language. I don't think that's what Chesterton's doing. I think what he's saying is if we're so critical that we can't be poetic and can't have this sense of wonder about the world, we have reduced the world to less than it is. We're not adding more to the world and making it up. And I think in our modern minds, it's very hard to do that. We, we kind of have this baseline cynicism of like the world is just atoms crashing and atoms. is just stuff. And you just try to squeeze the most pleasure you can out of it and you know impose your will upon it or whatever. And when you're like, oh, look at the meaning of this. You're just like, yeah, whatever. This is the real world, it's a dog eat dog world. Come on, you know? And I think it's a very hard mentality to break out of. And maybe even why Chesterton's work itself seems foreign to us. And yet when you mm-hmm. read it, you're like, and I feel like this way with Lewis, it's from a different time and you read it and you're like, how is this guy saying what I've always thought or felt but I couldn't put words to, Hmm. you know, and there's, there's that familiarity, even though they're both writing in prose, that's kind of out of style for us today. If someone wrote like this today, it would be like, what are you talking about? But I think it's interesting how he, how he brings it
1: out. In me. I mean, I think this is more evidence that there really are certain truths that are timeless and they're timeless in the sense that human nature is consistent and universal across generations across cultures across you know thousands of years of civilization and sure there's cultural variation and there's different ways of expressing humanity but there is a core human nature there's a core human psychology humans have core appetites and desires and drives and needs and ways for interacting and <clears throat> i think like this is what makes Lewis and Chesterton and people who we can read from hundreds of years ago whose prose is so different from ours whose turns of phrase are so bizarre whose idioms are unfamiliar and yet we read it and we say wow like I've always thought that and he's put words to what I've always thought that I think that's evidence that we've hit upon a timeless truth because humanity and human psychology are pretty consistent across time and so when writers 100 or 200 300 years ago are writing things that are compelling to us today then i think those are the especially salient points that we should home in on and focus on because if it was true if we recognize it as true now and this person found it as true 300 years ago then it could be that he's hit on some deep insight and we should take that person seriously
0: Well, he also has a great line where he says, it is one thing to describe an interview with a Gorgon or a Griffin, a creature who does not exist. It's another thing to discover that the rhinoceros does exist and then take pleasure in the fact that he looks as if he didn't. And that is a great line because he's saying, we're not talking about making things up. We're talking about having wonder at the world that actually is. And so he's saying, it's one thing to be like, oh, I I met this fantastic animal. It's called a Gorgon or a Griffin and whatever. It's like, okay, you're making something up. It's a fairy tale. It's another thing for him to say that, have you ever stopped to think how bizarre a creature the rhinoceros is Mm -hmm. and to enjoy the fact that it is so odd? And that Mm -hmm. Mm self-awareness, that consciousness is something very human about our experience that can't be just broken down into, you know, basic atoms or, or math or whatever. There's something about that experience where we go, huh, it's th- this world is, it, it's, it's like a fish in water. It doesn't know what water is. And we're, we don't realize what a strange world we live in and the strange creatures that are there and the undiscovered mysteries within the world as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I love about astronomy is how weird the universe is. I mean, you talk about black holes and you're like, there's a hole in time and space that sucks in light and nothing can get out. There could be multiple universes spanning out. I mean, you're like yeah, when yeah. you, or like there's just gas that floats throughout the universe, and I mean, it, it's Can just tell, and time about is your, your valuable. bowel
1: movements, Brian. Yes,
0: I'm talking about my <laughs> bowel movements. That's exactly what it is. It's one thing to talk about my bowel movements. It's another thing to discover
1: gas that's, uh, floating about the air. It's another thing
0: to take pleasure in it.
1: Um, so oh, man, I don't think anybody does.
0: Uh, ironically, <laughs> after I said that, I just, I just saw Cheston's line. I never in my life said anything merely because I thought it was funny. Though of course I have had ordinary human vainglory and may have thought it funny because I had said it. I think I just did that. <laughs> I just, I just did what Cheston is talking about.
1: Um, no, I'll give you credit. That one was actually funny. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But yeah, I mean Ch- Chesterton what he what he's doing is he's giving us a richer sense of reality. Like the rhino, you might you've seen a million rhinos and you've seen them on in cartoons and different forms and comics and Planet Earth and Discovery Channel. But if you really stop and think about rhinos, they're hilarious. Like it's just this huge like obese creature with horns just like sticking out of its face. Like it's if God has a sense of humor, just like Chesterton. <laughs> this giant obese figure. Go ahead. Maybe that's why um, he thought they were so strange. Maybe, so maybe, yeah. yeah. Familiar and strange at the same time. Anyway, go, keep going. P.G. P. Woodhouse, the famous English comedic writer, said uh, he once described a crashing sound in one of his novels with the, with this description. It sounded like Chesterton falling down the stairs and landing on an aluminum tin. <laughs> Man, what these guys were line. savage back in the they day. They were, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great line. It's hilarious. Like, that's just imagine just like a big, like chunky guy with his cigar, like falling down the stairs onto a tin. Like it's, it's visceral. You feel it. Um, but yeah, I mean his, his weight, his size was something that always like people, people made fun of. And, um, yeah, he's giving us this richer sense of nature. Like you can go to the imaginary, but you can also just look at the world and marvel and wonder at it. And he's going to bring this up later in the book, but Part of the sad, tragic reality of being a human adult is you become bored with reality. And so he talks about the kid who his dad picks him up and does the rocket ship and throws him up in the air. And the kid just says, do it again, do it again, do it again. And he never gets bored. Like it's that one mundane like adrenaline rush and he can do it a thousand times. And you look at that, and you could say, well, that's dumb. Like the kid is stupid. Like he's broken. Like there's something wrong about that. Or maybe it's us who's broken. Maybe we're the ones who can't enjoy things and mm-hmm. see and delight in them the way that they ought to be enjoyed because we've become so desensitized to beauty out in the world. And so it's the child who's actually got this real sense of wonder in nature and they can truly delight and there's that the famous vine video from years ago of the kid who opens up his Christmas present and it's an avocado. <laughs> Have you seen this one? No. It's adorable. Okay. He's just like, like, oh my goodness, it's an avocado. And he's like genuinely excited. And you look at that and you're like, like, why is he excited over an avocado? But also, like, avocados are exciting. And maybe he's just like genuinely found he's seeing nature as it is and like in the richness that it is. And Chesterton's trying to do something like that. Like, nature is actually exciting, and it's our fault for not recognizing that. Like, that's what part of sin does to us. It desensitizes us to the delight that we should have in the ordinary world. I mean, I I remember
0: reading this book on depression called, uh, I don't remember, it was by Johan, I can't remember what it was called. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Sounds made up. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, it's called Lost Connections, Johan Hari, why you are depressed and how to find hope? (laughs) But one of the things he talks about is disconnection from nature. Mm. And um, you know, you can see like, I know, There's probably, I think there's statistics about depression in highly in, you know, in, in cities versus, you know, because they're detached from greenery and trees and all stuff. So there's almost something built within us that needs to see the natural world and have that kind of wonder that it just springs out of the ground and, you know. Um, But one thing I also think interesting about Chesterton is, is he, he does talk about how he's saying, all I'm saying is I'm, I'm delivering you the great tradition. I'm not making this up. And there's actually a security in that. You'd almost think someone could say, well, why don't you think for yourself? And he's like, well, actually, uh, thinking for yourself, I mean, there's a good to that, but also you want to think along with great thinkers as well. And you want to think along what has stood the test of time. And um, he, he talks about how he's the guy, he's the English guy on the yacht who finds out that not only has he ended up in England, back where he started, and he thinks it's a new place, but he thinks he discovered this new place. Or if he finds out it's England, it's like, oh, actually, he not only goes back to where he was, he realized where he was has been something that stood for a long time. And he says, I did try to find, I did try to found a heresy of my own. And when I had put the last touches to it, I discovered that it was orthodoxy. So so he's like, I'm trying to come up with this way to view the world. And he realizes I'm just regurgitating Christian orthodoxy. And I wonder if that is actually a common experience for people, even if you didn't grow up in the church maybe, you know, people grew up in the church. You grow up and you realize a lot of the things that you grew up with, they ended up being true. Or you didn't grow up in the church. Like, I didn't grow up in the church. But there were a lot of things about Christianity that still were, like, universally, like, oh, this is affirming what we know to be true. The dignity of human beings. You know what I mean? Um, that there must be something more. The eternity in our hearts. And uh, I think that that's a really interesting um, Thing that he brings up, and it, it's really, I think his yacht metaphor is really helpful in seeing that. You just want a yacht, don't you, Brian? I just want a yacht. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, this is a. I, it really is. Rereading this has been a, a helpful way to kind of. I think even as a Christian, you can need your world to be re-enchanted a little bit, and you get a little mm-hmm. cynical about things. And uh,
1: don't get Disney on me, man. Don't. No, don't but. Start <laughs>
0: This is the thing about Chesterton, though. He's not cynical. Yeah. But he's still got that wit, that sharpness that cynical people have. And that's almost like a a helpful thing because you're like, this is a guy who who knows how to see through things. Mm -hmm. But he has found something he can't see through. That is the foundation. And the fact that he can't see that foundation and he's a guy who sees through most things means that it probably withstands a lot of scrutiny. And I think that that's, what's helpful about him. You know, it's like if a comedian laughs at a joke, it's probably really funny because they tell (laughs) jokes for a living, you know? And if a cynic, a cynical guy like Chesterton finds something that he finds true, you know, when he sees through a lot of the charlatan stuff of other people, it it probably has a lot to it.
1: Unless you're a movie critic, in which case, if you like a movie, then it's actually probably a bad movie. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. We'll (laughs) see. Uh, but
0: uh, now I'm thinking about like all. The <laughs> think about like all the movies that got like awesome audience scores and terrible critic scores. Yeah. Yes. But uh, I, I'm one of those people that I, I look up a review of the movie before I see it. I just have to know if it's going to be worth my time. And
1: you're so you know. you're so weird. You're so like. I don't know what it is. You don't want to waste your time. Yeah, that's what it is. You don't want to waste your time. You have a high bar for what it takes to entertain you. That's what it is.
0: I just want to know that I'm supposed to like it. And then I can go in and like it.
1: You know? That's, that's so kind just, of what it is. You're, you're a sheeple. You're yeah. Being, everyone's telling you what to think about movies.
0: Exactly. Exactly. This is a great discussion. We're going to keep continuing on through this book. Uh, stick with us on this. I mean, it's a great book. The next chapter is called The Maniac. He's going to talk about... People skinning cats and uh, people being insane. So that's going to be a good good, uh, good talk. But I uh, appreciate you guys listening to this. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. Love to hear feedback from you guys so you can send us a DM. And uh, maybe you'll make it on the show. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you guys next week.